I'm Liv. I'm Steve. And this is Fish Out of Water, a podcast for epileptics by epileptics who are not medical professionals. Except me, kind of. And that's my sister, Dr. Boo, (laughs) in her first year of residency in Ontario. How you doing? (laughs) Uh, I'm doing well. It's great. I finally have a week of vacation off, so it's nice to be at home visiting family uh, and have the opportunity to sit down and talk to you guys. That's pretty cool that you're uh, going to be a doctor. Yeah. Well, she is a doctor. Well, you are a doctor. Oh, that residency. Okay. Yeah. Residency. Is now a- I'm getting you. Yeah. I'm like a, a doctor in its infancy right now. Fair enough. That's awesome, though. Are you uh, ready to pay off all those medical bills? We're working on it. <laughs> Slowly. It's going to take years, but. <laughs> yeah. I can imagine. It's kind of an expensive trade to get into initially. It is. But definitely worth it so far, I think. So. Liv, why don't you uh, tell us what we're going to be up to for this this episode and the next episode? We got a two-parter. Our first two-parter. Official two-parter. Yeah, there are episodes <laughs> in the past that probably should have been two-parters. Um, yeah. But yeah, this is going to be part one, which is going to be get to know my sister, because I've had epilepsy since I was 10, and she's uh, three and a half, four years younger than me. So we're going to talk about what it's like growing up with a fish and being a fish. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But don't worry, people. We still have our regular corners. Uh, Liv's going to do a not-so-fun fact. Oh, am I not-so-fun fact right now? I am not-so-fun fact. And I'm a famous fellow fish. And uh, for uh, one of these, I'm redoing it simply because get a little bit of a a professional point of view on some of it and uh, get to talk about uh, some medications, which I know is everybody's favorite subject. It really is. When I go onto the epilepsy Facebook pages and they're go, you know, what do you want to talk? What would you like me to talk about? They're all like medicine. Talk about the shit that medicine puts you through. A lot of crap goes to Keppra, which I haven't been on, but I've heard some horrible things about. Yeah, I I have too. Oh, man. It doesn't sound fun. All right. So we're on. Hang on. Is it not? Yeah. Not so fun fact corner. Okay. So um, I was actually studying for the uh, not so our famous fellow fish and I came across something that turns out to be a thing that I didn't know and it is not so fun fact did you know that they used to send fish to colonies back way back when like they would send singular people out to colonists so how do I put this okay so there's the like uh, National Epileptic Society this is what they used to be called now it's like the Epilepsy Society. Mm -hmm. So it was launched in 1892 by a group of London philanthropists and medical men. The aim of the society was to establish a colony for people with epilepsy who were capable to work but couldn't find employment due to their condition um, at any time. Uh, At that time, many people with epilepsy were confined to workhouses and asylums due to difficulties in finding work and lodgings. So in 1894, the first patient's um, or colonists, as they were called, were admitted to this uh, this first colony, and they were all men, and they were charged ten shillings a week. Although f- there was financial help that was provided from uh, people that couldn't afford it, obviously, because this was way back when. And the original staff consisted of a lady superintendent, a bailiff, a male attendant, and a nurse and a female servant. So it wasn't until, like, years later that women were allowed to go to. Okay. Yeah, because women aren't as important. Um, and they, so the men would 
do um, carpentry, plumbing, painting, and bricklaying. And they would do a lot of this outside because fresh air and hard work is beneficial to patients' health and well-being, perhaps more so than drugs and doctors way back mm. when, apparently. Um, and they were visited regularly by medical staff for the paralyzed and epileptic in London, some of whom were responsible for the funding of the National Epilepsy Society. So the women, when they went years later, they would do uh, washing and laundry. Mm-hmm. And a little bit of haymaking, and that's it, because we're dainty. Well, uh, <laughs> the times be the times. I mean, that yeah. was generally the jobs. And you, when you did physical work, it was a lot of physical work. So generally speaking, they did put it to the guys simply because they were the bigger, stronger people. And it, everything else fell to, uh, unfortunately, the women. Mm-hmm. And it was a lot of tedious nonsense, typically. Yeah. By uh, 1900, there were seven permanent homes accommodating 90 men and just over 40 women. Uh, they were strictly segregated with a neutral zone between their respective quarters, and the colony residents were not allowed to marry. So I had a lot of fun going through this. There is a lot of information, a lot of information on this. Over the years, the number of residents rose, reaching to a peak of 575 in 1942. This included over 100 children. But due to failing numbers, the school was closed in 1957, and the remaining children were transferred to Lingfield to what is now Young Epilepsy, formerly the National Center for Young People with Epilepsy. Uh, eventually, doctors were hired like just for this one place like there would be now and then I did more digging and I actually found a newspaper article of the first one that was opened in the states which was Cleveland Ohio in July July 29th I don't have the year but the Ohio this is the actual little article that I found the Ohio Asylum for the Epileptic Insane at how do I pronounce that word Galapagos will be ready for the reception of male patients by October, when five cottages will have been completed. It is the first institution for the separate care and treatment of this class for unfortunates that have been established in the United States and has cost thus far about $300,000, the site having been given to the state. The superintendent is likely to either be Dr. H.C. Rudder of Bella Fontaine or Dr. E.J. Rorick of Bowling Green. It is intended to accommodate as many as possible of the epileptics now in country infirmaries and if there are room for more to believe the regular asylums for the insane (laughs) to as great an extent as can be done. The capacity of the five cottages will be upward of 250. Some talk is already heard among these most deeply interested in this very important question of the proper treatment of epilepsy to the effect that the that a serious mistake has been made in not providing for the separation of the men and women in different institutions. And it is probable if the state were to begin again, that two asylums, one for each sex would be established. Hmm? Why does that even need to be like considered though? Oh, there's, there's good reasons. Okay. Well, yes, there are. I don't mean just people be naughty. Uh, (laughs) That's that's not what I'm getting at. Um, I'm going to go with, uh, the job I do uh, at mental health, we have mixed groups in there. Like you have both sides, but you have to keep an eye on uh, them. Now, this is people that have issues. So there are some obvious things that go with that. But we have to be very careful that certain things don't happen. Not because we don't mind them having relationships. Relationships are actually just fine. The biggest problem is that 
you'll have incidents. And this is in the past. I'll give you an example that was in the past, like long before I got there and they had to change things. They had a room that was a quiet room and people were supposed to be able to uh, go there to rest. It ended up being called the rape room. Mm. And uh, Whoa. Re- yeah, because uh, it, it, what would happen is someone would go there and because you don't have cameras there, you don't have anything uh, observing it. Women had a chance of getting raped in there and it would happen and there would be nothing we could do about it. And oh. it was so we shut that down. So when you have mixed groups and there's should be it, you would think it, it should run just like any society. Right. You have mixed groups, you have them there. But you've got to remember mixed societies run with also police force. And they also run with consequences. And when you do stuff like that, especially considering the time frame and how important those separate jobs were and how the the structure was. Now, structure these days, men and women can do pretty much anything they want, especially in westernized countries, right? But the problem, the thing you got to remember is we got a lot of machinery and a lot of things like that that do those jobs for us now. So it allows us the freedom to do all these things separately. Back then, it was basically if you needed it done. Now, women were quite capable of doing physical labor, believe me. But it was kind of considered more efficient that the men did it. And they also were very strict about those separations of... uh, It's like a class system, right? And it wasn't just that one got treated better. It's just that they didn't know how it was going to work, I bet you, when they first started it up. So they kept it separated. And they said, we'll start with this. And then they found that it, it worked out. So then they allowed the other half. I don't know. That's just my one one opinion. By all means, have your opinion. <laughs> yeah, come on, sister. Let's hear from you. Uh, well, it's interesting coming from somebody who's in training in a typically male-dominated field. So I'm mm. trained to be a general surgeon, which up until several decades ago, uh, that was unheard of that a female would be uh, going into surgery and trying to pursue that career path as well as like any kind of physician, but particularly surgeons, it's typically been male dominated. And again, there used to be that mentality that women couldn't do it and weren't suited for it. Um, but to the contrary, now my residency program is dominated by women. There that's are, what I, that's what I hear is that yeah. it's about 60% women nowadays, which is awesome. in medical Whoa. school. Uh, but in our, in my residency program itself, it's predominantly, predominantly female residents. There's uh, more male staff for sure at my institution, but that's slowly changing year by year. Um, and I think it's it's been interesting. There's I don't know how much I agree with the actual scientific method that they've used in order to produce some of these papers, but they've looked at all-cause mortality in patients that are cared for by a female primary physician versus a male, and it's actually... <laughs> lower if you are treated by female staff. And one of the thoughts is that maybe that's looking more towards preventative care um, and just a bit more meticulous record keeping. It's hard to say. But when I hear this story, I think it's more just, again, a a sign of the times Mm -hmm. um, that uh, that everything was essentially segregated at the time. I'm sure there's an element of this that isn't spoken to in terms of race segregation as well. Mm-hmm. Um, it's not mentioned Absolutely. in the actual article, but that would be my imagination um, that it would also have that because just systemic classism, racism, and sexism prevailing the times. One thing I would uh, 
when I when we get into the famous fellow fish, we're actually going to talk about this time period as well. Oh. Uh, yeah, so we're we, this is a serendipitous uh, day here. Yeah, we got a theme going on here. Yeah, now it, and this is where I have a point, and I'll, and I'll get to it in a second about that time period because the person I'm going to talk about in our famous fellow fish is Theodore Roosevelt. Yay! Now we for those that. Uh, don't know, which is probably most of you, we did do a recording, including Theodore Roosevelt, and when we finally listened to the audio track, it was such garbage that uh, we couldn't use it. Oh, it was just terrible. It sounded horrible. Yeah, it was absolutely nonsense. It was buzzing and dingings and stuff. Our equipment at that time was terrible, and even at its best, it sounded only okay, which is why we upgraded. But we're going to do Theodore Roosevelt again. Because he's, yeah, this guy, oh my God, we should really do a full episode just on him because he's insanely interesting as a person. But I will keep it short for the most part. Yes, let's do synopsis. <laughs> okay, so Theodore Roosevelt did have epilepsy, as did his brother Elliot. They both had epilepsy. Uh, he also had asthma, as I did as a child. He also was nearsighted, like I am. <laughs> he also had more uh, protruding teeth, believe it or not, but nobody knows it because he grew a big bushy mustache to cover them. <laughs> uh, so a lot of cool little things. One of the ways he got through his asthma is he did boxing, and then he did just ju- like you, yeah, and did <laughs> jujitsu. So he actually worked through a lot of that stuff by physical labor, and he spent a lot of his lifetime outdoors doing campaigns and all kinds of things because it was better and easier on his asthma. Quite interesting fellow. Uh, we could go on forever, but what I will summarize is: okay, he was born in 1858. Now, you got to remember, the time period that you're talking about is right ding smack in the middle of that time period, okay? The thing to remember is medication for anticonvulsants did not exist at that point. What you had is you had, at 1957, you had uh, potassium bromide, which was just being discovered. And now potassium bromide was a drug that they found... Uh, helped better than the herbs and spices and stuff that they generally gave people so that they wouldn't have seizures, which typically didn't work very well. Here, have some oregano. It'll help. Yeah, exactly. Here, sniff sniff some oregano. <laughs> um, <laughs> but the uh, but potassium bromide was the first anticonvulsant, and it was created in 1857. So... You can imagine, one of the things I would add is when the people look back at these things, they look horrendous. But you got to remember, it's like, how do we treat a large amount of people with the same illness? Well, you put them in a specialty place that all deals with this illness. Now, if you called it a hospital, uh, a working hospital, it might sound a little better. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so taking all these people that they didn't really have a, a means to actually stop the seizures for and putting them in a place where everybody, because you know how important it is. This is why we do this podcast. How important it is for people to understand what happens in epilepsy, all the different types of epilepsy, what happens with seizures. Don't stuff a spoon down my throat. You know, those kind of lovely little tidbits that we try to educate people on. It's so hard. And back then it was even harder. So putting them in a camp, actually made a colony a, a, which makes it that much worse to me okay well <laughs> it's it makes a semblance of sense from the time period they didn't have a way to treat them so having them all together so you had doctors or people there that could actually even the, their fellow fish could actually help each other more than a rando down the street at the time who probably thought they were just being possessed or something yeah that's true okay so phenobarbital so the phenobarbital uh, was the next drug that they uh, created, and that was around 1912. Now, 
Teddy Roosevelt uh, died in 1919. Uh, but uh, Sofina Barbatol would have been on the spectrum there by the time he passed away. It was much more effective, and it's actually still used today. And I was going to uh, sort of just do a little synopsis, but maybe you could tell us a little bit of phenobarbital. I'm putting you on the spot on this one. Yeah, Dr. Boo. You don't have to give us too much, but it is an interesting drug. <laughs> okay, no worries. <laughs> yeah, like I'm not, I'm not a pharmacist or anything. No. Um, but I do, like what I do know is that when somebody comes in in what's called status epilepticus, which mm-hmm. is a seizure that won't stop typically over five minutes or beyond um you can we usually start with benzodiazepines in order to try and treat it and then if that doesn't work we often try a phenobarbital next it's kind of our second line and then after that often if that doesn't work people sometimes have to be put into like a medically induced coma essentially with something a medication called propofol which they use for uh essentially putting anyone to sleep for a surgery. Right. Um, so that's kind of our, our second line is is phenobarbital. But again, I, I don't know a lot about the uh, actual... <laughs> I am putting you on the spot and I'm being a bit of an ass, I know. <laughs> um, no, the uh, so the generally uh, Ativan first, things like that, mm-hmm. uh, the benzos. And then, uh, but the phenobarbital was the first of the barbiturates. Mm-hmm. And it was it's still around. Now, what's interesting is you quite often hear people talk about new drugs and new drugs, and usually they're rebranding of old drugs. Uh, one thing I've uh, sort of noticed is that the uh, the big pharma in general ha- used to have 50% of their budget used to be research and development. It's now about 14%, and all that money went into advertising. Mm. And so they don't really make up new drugs or look for new drugs as much anymore. What they're doing is rebranding things. Like A good one is gabapentin. Gabapentin gets used for a hell of a lot of stuff that it's off label. For sure. And it's one of those ones that uh, they will put a, you know, yellow coat on and then they sell it as a nerve pain medication. Oh yeah, I've definitely prescribed it. Yeah, because it has all, so many uses. It's one of the most versatile drugs out there. Mm-hmm. I have never heard of it. Yeah, it um, was originally created as an anti-epileptic, and people have uh, also used it for um, like adjuncts to depression and different mental health disorders. Um, but now it's being popularly used for neuropathic pain. Um, as well and has shown some effect to it actually yeah and it's one of the hardest pains to actually master Mm -hmm. it's uh, one that still plagues people and uh, it's a very difficult one to control Mm -hmm. and so it's one of the drugs they do but they basically rebrand gabapentin and uh, sell it as a new drug Mm -hmm. and then they get to uh, because for those that don't know the way the pharmacy uh, like selling drugs works is if you create a new drug or you have a new drug you have I believe it's 10 years to uh, be the only one that can sell it and uh, you will have it branded and you'll have a name for it, like, say, Tylenol or something like that. Mm-hmm. And then you have 10 years. After those 10 years, everybody else is allowed to sell the same drug, not by the brand name, but by its usually by its original name. Mm-hmm. So um, for those that have had a bad tummy here and there and uh, a little bit of diarrhea, they've probably taken Imodium. But Imodium uh, has an original name. And if you look at the, the store brand version, it's the exact same thing. Mm-hmm. Uh, it doesn't change it, but the Imodium is twice as expensive because mm-hmm. that's the name everybody resonates. Now it allows them to recoup their money for research and development in theory, but selling old medications doesn't make pharmacies a lot of money. Mm-hmm. So what they do is they rebrand old medications and they sell them as new medications and mm-hmm. then they get 10 years to sell them. Mm-hmm. It's, it's a little shady. Anyways, Back to Teddy. Back to Teddy. He's an interesting fellow. We should really do a full episode on him one day. 100%. Anyways, shall we continue? Yeah. 
So, sister, <laughs> I was 10, so I guess you were around 6 or so when my epilepsy showed up. Do you remember that day? Well, we have disagreements about what actually happened. I have a very vivid memory, but you say that it was wrong. Okay. And then we tried to get our dad to be the tiebreaker, <laughs> and he can't make up his mind either. Okay, in my brain, I remember it. I was at the computer. You were drawing at the living room table, and my arm kind of, my right arm just stopped working. And I went, hey, boo, can you turn off the computer? My arm doesn't work anymore. And you went, okay. Okay, that's what I remember as well. Okay. But you told me something else the other day. <laughs> what did I say? I don't know. It, it, it wound up with me sounding like a jerk, though. <laughs> <laughs> okay, well, this is just sibling rivalry, I think. Yeah. Okay, do you remember like going to no, the No, but I remember... Yeah, I do. I remember you asking me to do something for you on the computer, because you can move your hand. And even though I was like six years old, I knew there was something weird happening. Oh, you did? Yeah, and then... We took you to the hospital and they couldn't figure out what was going on. So nobody knew what was happening for the next couple of months, I think, before we had any answers. I think that's when we started to disagree because I went into uh, we went to the hospital and we waited for four hours. Mm -hmm. And then they were like, maybe go to the big hospital in Victoria because we went to this the sandwich one, one, the itty bitty one. And they were like, OK, let's how about you go there? So we went home for a little bit and my dad and. Shannon talked, our dad and Shannon talked for a bit. And then we went to um, Vic General and I was admitted. And then, oh no, I was I think, in and out for a bit. And yeah. then they were like, okay, officially she needs to be in the hospital. I think I was in the hospital for like a little over a week. But then at some point they turned, got you over to BC Children's Hospital. That wasn't until years later when they started testing me for okay. the. Like do, doing the surgery. It wasn't until I was 13 okay. when I... Because I was six and I had no idea what was happening, so... <laughs> you just knew, oh, you're supposed to be able to move your arm, right? Yep. Yeah. Six is kind of one of those ages where you do have memories, but they're not always accurate. And then it's like, that's pretty early on for memories. Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. I can imagine it's more emotion than memories at that point. Yeah. Yeah. Is there a seizure that I had that you remember well? Like that one really sticks out in your brain? There are like many that I can remember. Was there one that was a particularly bad day or a uh, particularly memorable day because of just how... Because this can go several ways. I mean, when you got sisters and people you live with, especially when you're young, it can be one of those things where you have a lot of sympathy, but then there will be days where it's, it's actually cramps your style or it's getting in the way of your life. Mm-hmm. And people, when they're young, tend to think in those ways. It's like, how's this affecting me? Mm. Um, and anyone would do that. I would. It, like, and this isn't this that? isn't a blame oh, no. thing, by the way. No. I mean, it's just one of those things where you, if you live with someone with ongoing illnesses, it can actually end up, you know, making your life harder by proxy. Mm. It can even be cramps. Like, I don't want to go to this party. I have cramps, and the boyfriend gets annoyed or something. Why? Well, I, I just remember this is more recent. That one, and if you don't want me to talk about this story, just let me know. Hey, we're an open book. Yeah. So one. There's been a couple that have stuck out, particularly as we've grown closer as adult sisters. So, like, there was definitely a time when Livy and I didn't really see eye to eye on a lot of things. We have pretty different... Yeah, yeah, we have pretty different personality types and everything like that. So, uh, when we've finally grown up a bit and starting to kind of understand each other and form, like, an adult friendship on top of just a sisterhood, things change. So a couple of instances, one I can remember when we were up at my in-laws, your 
Oh, that Christmas yeah. one. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. It was a really yeah. You tell it was that terrible. Story. That was horrible. It was awful. So there were a few terrible things that happened that day. Like a the, a grandparent passed away. Ben's grandma. Ben's grandma passed away. Then you had a seizure. Yep. And meanwhile, everybody's downstairs mourning. Oh no. <laughs> Livy has a seizure, and then she gets food poisoning on top of that so she has a seizure and is throwing up oh. meanwhile ben's kind of stuck between like trying to care for his wife and be downstairs with his morning family oh god and then i was i didn't know anyone except for libby <laughs> so all i knew how to do was and it's christmas eve it was christmas too. eve that was like the worst christmas eve ever. It, we oh, libby oh. and i have a lot of bad christmas oh we get sick every christmas Not but all kidding. all i did that whole night was sit down and read you harry potter until yes, you fell while asleep I barfed. while you barfed into the toilet yeah i remember that seizure very well boo was in a uh, in a bedroom down the hall and <laughs> and i had a seizure and the phone call hadn't happened yet the middle of the night she's died phone call hadn't happened yet and i had a seizure and uh lasted you know the usual like one and a half minutes or whatever and suddenly he's going babe babe come on yeah come on and I didn't realize it, but I wasn't breathing. Yeah. And he scoops me, scoops me up like a damsel in distress and runs me to the bathroom. And I just started barfing. And next thing I know, Boo's beside me. And she's like, what can I do? And then yeah. the phone rings and, you know, I'm barfing into the toilet. And Boo starts reading with it the Goblet of Fire. Yeah, she I just sat so. in, in the cool bathroom, oh, read yeah. Goblet of Fire, then brought me into the, into the bedroom mm-hmm. and... Again, just sat and read Goblet of Fire. But Ben did a really good thing that night. Um, He knew what to do because she started having a seizure on her back and was vomiting at the same time, which is obviously a dangerous combination. So he did a great job of rolling her essentially into the recovery position onto her side so that she would be throwing up out of her mouth instead of choking on her puke. So Ben's instincts were totally on on top of it. Yeah, I was really impressed. I've had to do that with a few military friends after drinking too much, but um, yeah, it's a the it's, recover. It's a it's a it's an important tool. It is for sure. It's yeah. one that I don't think everybody truly appreciates. Yeah. So if you can, if you Google it, three quarter prone position or the recovery position is something that's important for first aid. During seizures, typically you kind of just want to leave them, clear the area around. If there's something that if they're hitting their head repeatedly on something, you can cushion it. Typically, you don't want to roll people over. Unless in this kind of exceptional position where Livy was throwing up simultaneously. Do it or I'll drown. Um, exactly. So, so that's the way I want to go. No yeah. one wants to pull a Bond Scott. I don't know what that means. Oh my God, you're too young. <laughs> Do you know what that <laughs> means? Nope. Bond nope. Scott, lead singer of ACDC before Brian Johnson. Ace, you do know oh, ACDC, yeah, yes? Yeah, Highway to Hell. Okay, right? Bon Scott was an amazing, <laughs> amazing uh, vocalist and performer. If you ever get the chance, and you should do this after this podcast, please, so I don't feel too old. Uh, <laughs> look up Bon Scott or ACDC, and then just look up some of their earliest stuff. Uh, and you'll see a kind of crazy looking guy uh, with long black hair uh, singing. And... Just watch his music videos because he's amazing to watch. The guy was a freaking lunatic and he was also had a tendency to drink. And unfortunately, he drank a lot one night and basically drowned on his own vomit. Normally, that's the death knell for a band. And that was like, I'm trying to remember now. My memory slips like 1980, 1979, something like that. It was very late or early in their career as opposed to now. 
but then within a year, they had a new lead singer, uh, Brian Johnson, and they started singing. So you have these fans that grew up with Brian Johnson and the ones that grew up with Bon Scott. Mm. And so you got the ones uh, that are on one camp and you got the ones on the other. I think they're both awesome. Ultimately, the sound that I hear the most is the Brian Johnson because he's been around for like 40 years now. But Bon Scott had a the most interesting sound and I think he was a better performer. That's an opinion and by all means, please tell me Send that. in your hate. Send in your hate. <laughs> it's all good. But yeah, so it, it does happen and to anybody. I mean, it's one of those things. We're all human, so... Mm-hmm. You know, anybody can get in that position. Really good thing to remember. Yeah. All right, Steve, I think you're next up for a question. All righty. Oh, you have your own sheet. I'm just kidding. Oh, yeah, I'm I'm well prepared. You are very prepared. I dumped water all over the equipment. Last <laughs> night at work was very boring, so I, I managed to get a lot of work done. That's uh, this type of stuff, which is awesome. So I love those days. All right. Um, boo. Mm-hmm. How do you think uh, having a sister that had seizures shaped your who you are today? Did it did it affect you in a way that you felt was transformative or directive? Definitely. I think it it really impacted our lives. And um, in terms of like me ultimately pursuing a medical career, I think it was actually a really big part of that. So I grew up with Livy frequently going to the hospital um, on different medications and seeing how that impacted our family. And honestly, my, my dad, for example, was always worrying about you and caring about you and even though you were probably more okay than he gave you credit for (laughs) it's the uh parents role to worry and he did oh we never stop constantly um but i think what was the most formative was when you were a teenager and i was kind of getting into that point where i started understanding a bit more what was going on 10 11 years old okay and seeing so just post surgery exactly okay. so like your whole experience of going through your surgery and your recovery and how that impacted you was really important for me to see i think um especially how resistant you were to it so i think overall your interaction and even my entire family's interaction with the medical field was not very positive at that time there was a lot of feeling that you're being you felt like you were being forced into having a surgery that you didn't want oh absolutely i did not want that at all yeah and i i understand why the our family decided to take that step because if it had meant that they could cure you from your epilepsy then that would be a huge win but obviously there's a lot of risks involved and somebody who's a teenager and just starting to find their footing in the world and get that sense of your own personality being developed at that time, um, that can take a big hit to your confidence and to your trust in the medical field. And then the fact that it didn't turn out the way that we wanted it to, obviously it didn't cure your epilepsy. Mm. Um, I think our whole family harbored a lot of guilt surrounding that, forcing you to undergo a risk with minimal reward. And that's really hard for an entire family to get past, I think. I honestly hadn't even thought of that. I had not thought of the way it would affect the family. Like, I felt, for lack of a better word, kind of betrayed. Exactly. And I did not think that it would have... That's one of the reasons why I wanted to do this episode, is because I didn't know how that affected you as a kid. It didn't. That didn't. We you never blamed. You never blamed oh, no. me at all. I was kind of an, an observer to the whole thing. Yeah. Um. Kind of a helpless one at that. There was <laughs> nothing that I could do 
at all, except for be there for you and know what to do when you had a seizure and support you if necessary or if possible. But seeing that interaction and how it changed the dynamics in our family was um, interesting. And I still reflect on it now, like going into medicine, because there's so much that goes into the process of getting consent for one of these risky life altering procedures. And every time that I'm getting consent from a patient to do surgery, I have to think about that. I have to realize that what the risks of going through it and what the risks of not going through it would pose to the person. And I want them to know what they're getting themselves into. Otherwise, we're not really going into the through the process of informed consent, which is so important. Um, it's, yeah. it's a tricky one in my business, too, with mental health. Mm-hmm. Uh, we constantly have to battle that because everybody's different and they could be different today than tomorrow. Totally. And it's one of those things. Now, everybody can. But when you when you're talking mental health, you're talking extremes. Totally. So it becomes one of these things like this person typically is fairly stable. But when they're in a bad spot, uh, yeah, you can't take anything they say too well because it's it's all over the place and Mm -hmm. yeah it becomes one of those issues and with children i think people underestimate children's ability to know what's going on yeah and i think a lot of people in pediatrics would agree with me absolutely quite often they have a better grasp on the whole thing than the parents do exactly and i i'm personally interested in going into pediatric surgery uh so this memory of how it impacted the whole family is I think going to be really important for me moving forward and realizing that involving the child in their own care is so crucial, especially um, crucial in building their foundation of, of trust with the medical professionals. And we want to be worthy of that trust. Mm-hmm. Um, so we got to work towards that every day and every step that we take. Um, and I think that, and again, I wasn't there for a lot of the conversations. I think Sometimes they tried to shield me from it because I was so young. Uh, but I feel as though there were definitely times where that trust was violated for you. And especially with my dad. Oh, yeah. Um, and he, to this day, still doesn't trust medical professionals that much. Nope. <laughs> Who's um, a witch? Yeah. <laughs> He mm. says, I'm the only doctor he'll trust, but at the same time, I will not be able to the give him any treatment. <laughs> that does nothing for him. <laughs> yeah. Um, I, I often hear uh, from people in pediatrics that the worst part of, about pediatrics is the parents. Yeah. <laughs> and and it's interesting, and I, I might just be naive in saying this, but to the other side of it, when a child is sick, the entire family is sick. Yeah. Everybody, I would agree. Everybody oh, yeah. is impacted. And if you can successfully help this one child, you're essentially helping an entire family. And the impact of working in pediatrics is in that sense, like so much bigger than you can in any other field. So um, that's one part that really draws me to it and hope that I can do justice to the field someday. Hmm. Somebody hire me. (laughs) Awesome. I don't think you'll have a hard time with that. (laughs) Were you ever scared? I think I was probably scared when you were going for your surgery because I knew something was happening, but I didn't really understand the gravity of it at the time. But I think overall, your seizures are fairly predictable in course, if you know what I mean. Like there's usually like, they're of a certain duration. I know what to expect. Mm -hmm. They look the same basically every time. Yeah. They're almost routine. Exactly. So the fact that they're predictable is 
Um, Predictability does lessen helpful. fear. Exactly. Yeah. So I think just having grown up with you having seizures, I I knew what to expect. I knew how to how to handle them for you particularly because mm-hmm. everybody's seizures are different, right? Mm-hmm. Very different. Yeah. It's so so complex and um, variable. So I I don't think I really have been scared recently by any of your seizures, but I know that you are probably feeling scared. But then there's sometimes where something funny happens during your seizure and you start laughing. Like that time I farted on the basketball court? Yes. <laughs> but also any time that you fart during your seizure, you start laughing. And I'm like, how could she be laughing right now? Because I okay. farted. It, 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 give us a short synopsis about the basketball court because everybody's going to say, what, what, what about the basketball court? Okay. Um, I think I was 15 and uh, Boo... And her friend Rachel and I were playing two-on-one basketball in this tiny little makeshift basketball court that was a driveway. And uh, I started having a seizure, and um, the flexing and unflexing caused a couple... And it was very rhythmic, like da 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 da. Mm-hmm. And well, Rachel started laughing because it's, it's a fart. They're funny. <laughs> Boo started laughing, and then I started laughing while having a seizure, which made it that much funnier. <laughs> so I mean, that's awesome. Yeah. The only other time, a very memorable uh, laughing post seizure. I wasn't with you. I was with uh, my friend Melissa. And we were playing karaoke, and I st- it was just the two of us, and I started to have a seizure, and so, you know, I'd get on this disgusting floor and seize, and then just, the seizure stopped, and I'm catching my breath. <laughs> I can't even get through it with a straight face. I'm starting to catch my breath, and she's leaning over me, holding my hands. She's actually never seen me have a seizure, and I've known her for the better part of 10 years. And then my heart will go on by Celine Dion <laughs> comes on and she's leaning over me like roses with Jack when he's when he's yeah. about to let go. So we just hear like this come on and we both lost it. Just, <laughs> it was the best timing of the best song. That's uh, awesome. It really was. Shout uh, out time. Shout out. Uh, I'm going to do a shout out to the women way back when who weren't able to go to the colony when they should have been able to. So you're probably long gone, but uh, yeah, you deserve to be like, not just the women, anyone that wasn't able to go to these asylums or colonies to get the help that uh, you deserved. I'm sorry. And shout out to you guys. Awesome. Alrighty. It's fits of laughter it's time. It's fits of laughter time. Oh, but that might be offensive. So yeah, we found we did a whole episode last week on uh, terms that uh, like questions and we had terms and terms that some people find offensive and some people don't. Okay. I was basically devil's advocate because I find very little offensive. Yeah. Probably to the point why where I, I named the episode Devil's Advocate. Oh yeah. <laughs> yeah. So I was but I was always scratching left scratching my head, like, why do people find that offensive? And and some of them I was like, I can see it, and it was like, okay, I can see that. And some of them I was like, I I don't know. You're you're looking for something to be mad about. <laughs> and a main one was fit. Yeah. Okay. And we were talking about how in England and Europe, fit is actually a common term for having a seizure. Yeah. Uh, they're having a fit. Now they kind of number of people find it kind of offensive over here. So I can understand that one to a point, but we call this fits of laughter regardless because it's awesome. It's, it sounds it's, good. You Okay, you come up with a better title, let me know. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. I'll, I'll put that out there. <laughs> there's, there's something to be said about 
using your own terms for your own community. I think yeah. that you guys can... We're allowed to say <laughs> Say whatever you want. <laughs> okay. Now, I because of uh, you being here, I did do two doctor jokes. One for this part, and for those of you, make sure to tune in for our second part, and you'll hear the second joke. Okay. Both doctor jokes. He's okay. apologizing in advance. <laughs> this one's not so bad. Okay. Uh, my doctor wrote me a prescription for daily sex. But my girlfriend keeps on insisting it's for dyslexia. <laughs> <laughs> That's pretty good. Doctor joke. You know who does a lot of really good doctor jokes uh, and memes and stuff is Dr. Mike on uh, YouTube. Oh, okay. Do you know Dr. Mike? No. Never oh, he's, he's getting really famous now. He's like on talk shows and everything. Oh, wow. Yeah, he's, uh, he's hilarious. He's also incredibly good looking. And uh, yeah, and he's funny, but so and he does all this stuff online like uh, he does on YouTube. He has his own channel called Dr. Mike, and uh, he is uh, like one of those practical doctors that's not like doing stuff like Dr. Phil that was like making a talk show out of it. Yeah. And makes a lot of money. He just does this to inform people and also uh, does some fun stuff, too. Like he'll play like those uh, doctor video games and see how inaccurate (laughs) it is. And he'll let you know the inaccuracies of different things. and so (laughs) Yeah. you'll watch tv shows that are dark like dr house or house mm. uh i should say uh and he'll say okay well most of this is accurate what they're saying but they would never have like five doctors for one patient doing the same thing because <laughs> oh that would gosh. never happen yeah <laughs> so he, he's actually quite uh entertaining that's my personal little shout out is yeah. watch dr mike he's great still looking uh yeah. there's a um similar there's an obstetrician that uh, will watch live episodes of I Didn't Know I Was Pregnant mm. and just be like, how did you not know? Just basically that's what she does. I can't remember her channel name, but oh, she's man. done so many episodes. I love that show. I didn't know I was pregnant. I do remember one. It wasn't on that show. It was something totally unrelated, but it was a lady who didn't know she was pregnant, but she was morbidly obese. Oh, dear. And she just thought she had stomach cramps. Oh, and the time she found out that she was pregnant was when she was giving birth. Yep. Was... Libby, you've watched many shows that, along those lines. Yeah, but there's I didn't know I was pregnant, and that's like the best one. Yeah. <laughs> it's literally in the title. But then like the people are like explaining, yeah, this was happening and this was happening. I'm like, how did you not know? I also have a uh, my two cents, and uh, this may sound like a burn but it's you know more like please get better is uh, a lot of the sexual education in the states is horrendous mm. 32 of the 50 states can elect out of sexual education oh my god and those that uh, can most of them can do it with whatever way they want to so if they want to do it in a religious aspect and not a scientific aspect they can and mm-hmm. I have no problem with religion by the way you know, everybody do you but that's like a science-based study. This is stuff you need to know. It's it's science. It's yeah, it's, it's important. It's life. It's life science. It's very important. Have you seen that South Park episode about sexual education? Probably. Oh God, it's so funny. <laughs> they think the condoms are used to pee in. <laughs> I'm I'm this is I'm getting recollections of this now. Yeah, they're like at their desk and peeing into a condom and like tying it up and trying to chuck it into the wastebasket. <laughs> That's fantastic. Carpe diem. Get it? Uh-huh.